The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out, theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Today's episode is episode number 314. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating, not because we think we're cool, but because we want people to be able to find us when they go to Google and ask for podcasts about addiction. We are in our seventh year of podcasting, and we've been doing it every single week. And we feel that the stories that are told on our podcast are valuable and helpful to people who are suffering either themselves or through friends and family who are suffering from this addiction pandemic. So today we have an interview with a young man who is a rapper, which is kind of exciting. We've had rock musicians on, but this gentleman is a rapper. His name is Khalid Muhammad. He was born in 1988. He's the son of Nation of Islam minister Tony Muhammad. He was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and moved to Los Angeles at the age of six. Muhammad helped form Overdose in 2008. He's known professionally as Kent James, and that's J-A-M-Z. Maybe it's Kent Jams. I may be saying it wrong. Um, and he's an American rapper and singer from L.A. He is, as a member of Overdose, Kent Jams had already made a name for himself before branching out on his own, first with a collaborative 2020 EP, Jank Tape Volume 1, with fellow L.A.-based rapper Buddy, and then with his debut solo album, 2022's Fan Club. We know that Khalid has his own story with addiction, so let's talk to Khalid Muhammad. Khalid Muhammad, also known as Kent James. Did I yes, say it right? Yes, ma'am, you did. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you for being on the podcast today and being no willing to share your story with us. Yes, ma'am. So tell us... Um, I like to start with your background. How, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And, you know, how did you get into drugs, which may segue with how did you get into rapping? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess a little bit, probably it was way before that. But um, so my dad is a minister in the Nation of Islam. Uh, we moved from Georgia when I was six years old. Um, I grew up with a lot of discipline. Um, being raised Muslim, and my family is very close and tied together. I've never seen my parents argue. I've never seen them yell at each other. Wow. Um, I've definitely never saw them. They've never taken drugs or alcohol in front of me. Um, and moving from Georgia to Atlanta, I had no family here. So I would stay around like um, – my dad's mom passed and both of my mom's parents passed. And that all happened, I think, within a year and a half. It was very close. It was like a, from when I was 11 and 12 years old. Wow. And I just remember at that time, I, I, that was the time I started experimenting with drugs, with weed, of course, first. And so, you know, I just would smoke, you know, kind of, I guess, recreationally. And um, it just, you know, escalated a little bit more after that, getting out of high school that's when I started experimenting with um, 
what would come next. Alcohol came next. And I wasn't big a big alcohol drinker because uh, I played sports. Even when I would smoke weed, I would stop during the times that I was playing sports. I was what very sports big. did you play, Khalid? I was football, football okay. and track and baseball and a little bit of soccer, too. So I was doing it all. And um, I just didn't, you know, I, I never indulged in any any alcohol or drugs doing during the times that I would be playing sports, which for the most part filled up a lot of my time, which I think a lot of parents do, especially a lot of black parents is for where I grew up in South Central. There's a lot of gang activity as well. Mm. So they always be busy. And that was just something that I, I learned doing drugs and drinking alcohol outside of my home. And so being raised so discipline and and always around my family i kind of for the fact that i never got to know my extended family i guess like i i took on my friends um their family and learned things from their and them and their family like during holidays and things like that and that's kind of what embarked me on doing drugs and then after doing a little bit of something you always i feel like feel like you can handle the next step up of a drug so right but it became for me. Um, and that's, that's like, yeah, that's my background growing up and getting introduced to drugs. And did your, and did your parents know? Yeah. So that's the weird thing with my parents. Um, I used to have problems a lot, especially with my dad, because they knew, and I feel like they never, they, they would always tell me not to do it, but they, they were never like, I guess like, Oh, my, my friend's parents who would discipline them and, and kick them out of the house and things like that. My mom and dad would always just tell me, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to run into something. And if you keep doing that, you're going to run into something. They wouldn't drill me on certain things. They kind of just let me find my way um, to that, to like, you know, just, just, I don't know. They, they were very loose. A lot of people would expect from my dad to be a little bit more of a disciplinary on me and my mom, especially they worried. But yeah. they, yeah, they, they, they knew and they just weren't being, um, they just weren't on my back about doing it. They were letting me do things. They were even telling me, hey, I used to do this or I used to do that. And that kind of like, in a way, would make me think it was okay when it kind of wasn't. And so the older I got, I would become more upset with them for not being more disciplined, you know, for not disciplining me more on doing drugs like that. But they were very interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So did you, what drugs did you end up like progressing to? Like how hardcore did you uh, get? A lot of cocaine, a lot of tequila. Well, that was my vice, my, my big vices, especially getting up into the age of like my late 20, early 20s, late 20s. It was cocaine and tequila. Marijuana was always home base for me, right. which I didn't think that was, especially growing up in California, would it be illegal? You kind of don't, it's, equate that with being elite um, of a drug right but it definitely was a lot of a lot of marijuana and a lot of cocaine a lot of tequila and i never was a heavy drinker um especially until i would say right before covid hit and then when COVID hit that's when it got out of control okay did you always want to do music did you always want to get into rapping how did that come Um, about yeah I always wanted to sing. I sing as well. So okay. I would I would be doing more singing than anything. Um my my grandmother used to sing a lot in church when I would go visit her. Um and that kind of inspired me. And I, and then my dad's father was a singer too, which I didn't know for the longest. <laughs> and so I could I always knew how to sing. Right. Um I always thought I would be a lawyer. Oh. I always thought I would be a lawyer. <laughs> 
Wow. I love okay. Today. I have lawyers in my family, so I, I always thought it would either be a teacher or a lawyer. Okay. And then mm-hmm. did did the music fuel the drugs? Did the drugs fuel the music? Was there? How did that? Um, how did they get, get think, go together? I think the music, the music was just a soundtrack to what I was going through. I would always songs like, you know, that alluded to me doing drugs, of course. And I always, every now and then, the best songs that I've put out was me not trying to do drugs. Like, I have a song with a group I used to be with called Overdose, called Lauren London is what we named it. And then the the song starts off with me saying, I've been trying to stay sober, mama. And that's the biggest song. So I didn't even realize that, I guess the subconscious of me not trying to do drugs, just trying to be happy. And I think depression um, is what, that's what fueled the drugs, depression. It was little signs of depression, little signs of anxiety. And I think that it came from doing drugs, but I just didn't know. So I think that the the depression and anxiety fueled by drugs is what led me to do that. The music was the therapy out of all of it. Understood. And I just realized the name of the group was Overdose. Does it that does that have something to do with drugs? Is I mean consciously, yeah. Uh, so it, it it when we when we started doing that, um the or when we started when we named the group, it wasn't for drugs. Of course we were experimenting with drugs. Right. So I don't think we necessarily took that into context. We knew that people would think about that, but it was more so our friendship, when we were around people, people always, they never wanted to not be around us. They always wanted to just listen to our music and hang with us. Wow. And we were doing and experimenting at a young age with drugs that people in my community just wouldn't dare touch. Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So from being around uh, a different types of people um, in the record industry, um, just different film, we would be, um, be becoming um, friends with different film students and things like this, you know, cocaine and ecstasy and things like that. That wasn't really big in the black community. It was mainly we all. So when we were doing that to, and our other friends would see that, it was like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know about that. But then eventually they would all experiment with it come back to us like yo i've been doing this and so it didn't come from the actual aspect of us doing drugs it was more so people just overdosing on our friendship wanting to be around us and the type of music we were making i got it well that's a Mm -hmm. that's a better way to overdose that's okay with me if people want to overdose (laughs) on your music that's fine so at what point and this is why we call the podcast point of no return at what point did things get bad enough for you that you went, I have to do something about this. I have to fix this. Uh, um, 
it was about probably about four or five months ago where I actually tried to, or not tried, I did. I stopped drinking on my own. I stopped doing cocaine on my own. And then I got a therapist and I had never done therapy before. And it's just not a big thing, once again, in the black community to do therapy. It's just, you know, you take a, you know, you take an L or a loss and, or you take hardships and you just figure out a way to get over it. You kind of bottle it up. Right. And so when I got into therapy, therapy is what I like to tell people, push me to go to Narconon or go to get, go to rehab because wow. what therapy for me was, it only brought up the issues that I, I, I kind of suppressed, but it okay. didn't teach how to deal with them. So now that I was off of drugs and off of alcohol, I didn't have anything to pacify the, those emotions I was feeling. And so it was like, I'm, I'm remembering things of me starting drugs or remembering things that drove me to be at the alcohol, I mean, be at the liquor store at six in the morning. And it's like, okay, how did I get here? I, I realized how I got here, but that was it. Right. And the therapy, it was over. And here I am left with just these manic, manic moments that I was having. And so I would be in the studio recording and all of a sudden my body would just start going through convulsions. Like oh my. Where it was very scary. Yeah. Then um, I, I would be, I wouldn't sleep for about two to three days. Um, my face started sinking in. I was like, my face was getting very skinny. But at the same time, I was running seven to 10 miles a day. I would spend two hours in the gym. Mm. I would get out of the gym and, and just feel angry. I would always feel angry. I started um, started losing a lot of friendships through um, just talking to people the wrong way out of anger and, and all emotion and sadness. And I just realized like at a moment, like I am all by myself and I only have my family. And so once that happened, once again, the body convulsions and the hallucinations for me, not doing drugs just got out of control. I had never felt like that before. I had never been able to not sleep. And like I said, like, I mean, like it was violent body shaking and violent wow. sweat, violent. I mean, just, just long days of insomnia. And I remember being at my mom's house and it happened in front of her and just seeing the look on her face and her going to get my father and the look on their faces. I, I knew at that point it was time to go get help. Right. Now, and what, I was doing a lot of was, deaths, too. Now, Narconon is a treatment center. I mean, a rehab mm -hmm. center, if you will. But you're already clean. What led you to Narconon? What, how did you make that decision? What made you do that? My parents, my father. Oh. I remember being on the, the floor of his kitchen, shaking uncontrollably, but not necessarily being scared. It was because I was at that point used to it. It had happened about more than 10 times at that point. And I had been wow. telling them about it, but they had never seen it. And he had been alluding to Narconon. And I knew uh, through him being a Scientologist, him and my mother, um, about the PURF program that he always wanted me to do. And I recently had just been on tour and it got cut short. I remember tour getting cut short. And that kind of like sent me into overdrive as far as going back into the studio. But within going to the studio, the body convulsions didn't go anywhere. The anxiety didn't go anywhere. The anger just didn't go anywhere. Right. And so for me being on the floor of their kitchen, shaking uncontrollably, having hallucinations. And he, I just remember him saying like, you're going to Narconon, right. like you're going there. And I just remember from how my body felt and how my brain felt. Um, if anybody's ever suffered from insomnia and, and manic um, depression, 
they know like it, it takes a toll on your body. Yeah. And so I remember just being tired, just tired of being angry and tired of not sleeping and just not necessarily giving in because it wasn't like I didn't want to get help. I just didn't I didn't think I had time to. And so once that happened and I, like I said, the look on my parents faces, those are two people that I've always trusted completely. I've never hid anything from them. If they asked me if I was on drugs, I always told them. If they ever asked me if I was sober, I was always uh, you know, transparent with that too. And then also I have a uh, a seven-year-old daughter. And oh. so I'm so yeah. happy she never saw me in those states. That, that yeah. was the You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. And so it's one thing a- to scare your parents like that, but you don't want to scare a child like that. Mm-hmm. That's and so yeah. she never, she never saw that side. Thank but, goodness. Yes, ma'am. And so, like I said, it was. I just remember being on the floor and then him saying that, and I finally got some sleep. Finally got some sleep, and when I woke up, I saw. Um, the next morning is when I saw Fabian, who runs the Narcon in, at Ojai. I yep. just wake him and be up. <laughs> that he was in my parents' house. So I'm like, going, I'm back into my manic, uh, angry mode again. And he told me about the, the program and that's, and I, I went the next day. You know, and you, you're very lucky in many ways because I don't know how much alcohol you were doing at the height of your addiction, but we know because we've talked, well, we've talked to Fabian and we've talked to other people that coming cold turkey off of alcohol, that, that can kill you. You know? Yeah, that's that's what I was finding out. That's what was kind of putting me into those manic depression and, and a lot of the anger. Um, and then on top of that, I was working out. And so from getting information from my dad, um, the weed that was stored in my fatty tissues along yeah. with my body being used to drinking alcohol at different times. You have to understand, I, it got to the point where I was waking, I was beating the owner of the liquor store there, helping him open up the... Oh. the the gate to get alcohol and I would be drinking yep. a I think a full bottle before three o'clock like right. soon as I'm get soon as I'm in the parking lot for of the liquor store I would drink half of the bottle there and drive home and finish the rest before noon wow. so I was doing about two of those a day and yep. I was just I, it was an out of body experience it was an out of body experience and to be able to like you said do that on my own I was also yeah, I understand too. In the entertainment industry, um, a lot of the record labels they provide that stuff for you. So you'll come to the studio and trying to be clean, and you'll get there, and this bottles already on. You know, there's no fruit, there's no nothing to eat, but there's for sure something to roll up marijuana with, and there's for oh, sure boy. gonna be a bottle. So it's like they're kind of facilitating it for me. Yeah, so exactly. I feel like. Like, okay, are they trying to get me back on alcohol too? And then that would send me into a whole nother manic state to where I couldn't be there. And that, that, it was very hard. And I knew that I had to get away from the environment I was in. Definitely. Right. Now, now we've talked, Khalid, um, and, and first of all, very well done 
for where you're at now and and being around that environment where it's so easy for you to just pick it up and start again and not doing that. So very well done, you. But um, oh, lost my train of thought. I hate it when that happens. So what was then... Oh, did you? I know what I was going to ask you. Did you still have to go? I, we've talked about Narconon before, and we know that the first step is a drug-free withdrawal for someone oh, yeah. who shows up there who is still, you know, who just had their last hit of marijuana. I'm not marijuana, but heroin or what have you. And so they have to go through a, a withdrawal. Did you have to go through that as well? Or, yeah. okay. Because I was still smoking a little bit of marijuana. Oh, as, okay. Okay. As, but I was definitely still smoking marijuana. I mean, I went there. I didn't even know I, I had marijuana in my jacket pocket. Oh. So. <laughs> Khalid, you cannot do that <laughs> while you're here. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ. But but the yeah. good news is with the withdrawal at Narconon, and we've talked about this before, is that rather than giving you Suboxone or something, some other drug to ease you out of it, they give you vitamins and minerals yes. and things like calcium, magnesium drink, CalMag. So mm -hmm. that has got to have helped you. Did you did you get help from that? I mean, did that help you come it, up? It did, but you have to understand where you're coming out of addiction, you're against everything. Absolutely. You're questioning everything. Um, actually, uh, you know, with my mom and dad being Scientologists, I was used to CalMag. So they were, okay. uh, they were surprised at how many other students did, would it, they have to force drink it as opposed to me drinking it. Okay. Um, <laughs> the worst for me at that time, or not the worst, because the worst thing was doing drugs, okay. <laughs> but the, the most uncommon thing or the most alien thing for me in that moment was they wouldn't let me, um, drink or eat any sugar. So oh. I was very, very upset with that because I was used to having my coffee in the morning, used to being able to drink my Gatorade to where now I, when I drink, I only drink, I drink like Coca-Cola Zero or the Gatorades. Now that I drink, they don't have sugar in it. I rarely I drink one cup of coffee now. So all of the things that I got in withdrawal, withdrawal to me, it was definitely the hardest part of the program for me. But right. it was also the shortest part of the program. I right. was only in withdrawal for about four to five days where yep. a lot of my my, um, the, my fellow students that were there, they, like you said, for me to have been coming off of these things cold turkey by yep. myself, a lot of these students went in there and that's where they did their withdrawal. So yes. they were, everybody was ecstatic with me being able to come out in four or five days, whereas opposed to some students stayed in there for about two to three weeks. Yep. Yep. And then you mentioned um, that your parents knew about something called the Purif, which at Narconon is called the New Life Detox Program. Detox. Talk about what that experience was like for you. Um, the detox wasn't as boring for me because, I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a stickler on working out. Like, I, I love to go to the gym. Um the only thing that was tripping me out is what it was doing for me. So that actually let me learn more about the vitamins I was taking that actually taught me more about how drugs are stored in my fatty tissues. And there would be times where I would even be experiencing like effects of alcohol or effects of um, marijuana, like just from it coming out of my system, I would have just like, man, it, it was, it was very weird. Then me having my, I, you have a twin at that point. Yes. To where you can share these experiences with them and they're saying some of the times they feel the same things or 
you're able to talk about situations where you come to these realizations where, man, okay, I think I was acting up on that. Or um, it was a lot of time spent also taking niacin and niacin. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> the the <laughs> that were coming out of me, I was just, I mean, even times where I had been sunburned mm-hmm. and didn't know. Um, where it would just be like hives or just different things coming up on me or goosebumps. And I started feeling real itchy or burning and, and stuff like that. And I started noticing, you know, I get real bad sunburn on my neck and on my ears and these things were coming back. So the radiation they taught me was coming out of me, just learning things that have been stored in my body chemically um, that you think that you've gotten over or aren't, aren't there anymore. That was, that's what actually I guess interested me on wanting to learn even more about the science behind the detox and purif- uh, purification programs. That that's that's what really kind of had. That's what got me. Yeah. Uh, being in withdrawal was one thing, and being able to come back into my own self was another. But the detox part of the program actually just that's what turned me into feeling like a whole new person. I believe that. I mean, I without like evaluating, I would bet that a lot of the anger that you had experienced may have, might have subsided with getting the drugs out of the fatty tissues. Is that true? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I, I started becoming much more peaceful, staying off of the internet. That's another thing too, <laughs> staying off of the internet, being able to just listen to music. And even though it was sad at times, even space away from my, my friends at the time and, and my family even, um, of course, I miss my daughter, and my parents did a great job of letting her know what I was, you know, going through, and 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 kind of alluding to it too, but not necessarily telling her the the details. My right. daughter's very anyway. Right. So just but to have that time away from everybody, and to just it was kind of like a break. I wasn't able to ever take a break. I feel like being a musician or an entertainer, you kind of always have this thing on your this monkey on your back. I would like to say to where somebody's doing something I'm not doing right now or somebody's working harder right now. And that's, that's all in your mind. And I feel like being in the detox part of it helped me to not even go within just to be present, just to be present and to feel, actually feel myself having a weight taking off of me. That was, it was amazing. Yep. It it was my, my favorite part of the program was the detox part. And I, and I like that, but it was my favorite. Well, it's interesting that you say that because um, we used to sometimes attend graduations at the Narconon that's here in our area. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the person running it would ask people who had completed withdrawal, does anybody want to say anything? And typically nobody wanted to say anything. But Mm -hmm. when she would ask people who had just finished the New Life Detox, if they had something to say, that was where we would hear things like, "Um, I know I'm not going to... you know, I can stay clean and sober now. I feel like I got my mind back. I feel like I got myself back. I mean, the realizations spiritually yep. and mentally that came out of doing what is essentially a physical detox. It's it's awesome. It's really it's, awesome. It's, and you say that, that's, that's when I made my mind up there too. I feel like being in there, when you first go in, it's like, you know what, when I get out, I might, I might not drink as much. Mm-hmm. And then, or I might not smoke as much weed, 
Um, I'm definitely not going to do this or I'm definitely not going to do that. But I, I don't know if I'm not going to ever do this again. But it's interesting that you say, because that's when I had the biggest realization of I don't I don't need drugs. I don't need alcohol anymore. Once I think I was like a weekend that second week, it was that's what I, my, my mind was made up like that. I'm open to everything else that comes with this program. But I'm definitely, definitely decided within myself. I, it wasn't something that I told everybody else. It was some, uh, an agreement that kind of just clicked on in my head with myself that I don't I don't need that. This is my reset. And that's the biggest that's the biggest and most important agreement you can make is the one with you. Yes, ma'am. So what's your life like now that you finished the program? Um, it's been going great. It's just, it's, it's in stages. So there's a part also in the program where you have to either handle relationships that you had or disconnect from relationships that you had coming out. So doing that, um, kind of put me in a bubble to where it was just me. And I guess people who I, I presume had a, a positive effect on my life coming out. Yeah. So the week of coming out was just a me getting used to being on my own and being able to trust myself, not doing drugs, being able to sit in the house without going to the liquor store or going to go smoke weed or even going around people doing that. So I feel like the first couple of weeks was just me um, just being by myself, just picking up my daughter and watching TV at my house and just being by myself, being able to work out and not feel manic and going back to the gym and spending a lot of time with my family who really, I missed the most while I was in there. Right. And then that, I started realizing that. But you know, you know, Khalid, sorry, that part, just that part of being able to be alone and be happy in your own skin and be able to just exist and just be, that's huge. Yeah. You make it, yeah. You make it sound not, not much. It's a lot. Okay. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, I started realizing that. And then within that, I started realizing that there were good people I had around me, but they didn't necessarily, it wasn't anything against them, but a lot of people that were around me were still indulging in things that I feel like they knew that was detrimental to me and that it wasn't their job to not be able to do it around me and things like that. So then I had to just handle those situations like how I learned to handle in Narconon, where it was some people I had to disconnect from, whether it be relationships that I was in with a woman um, whether it was um, the friends that I that I had and my, my closest friends at the time, I just had to tell them and to be able to confront them too. That's another thing we did at Narconon, to be able to look someone in the eye and have good intentions on what I'm saying and being open to whatever the outcome is, which was, you know, hey, you know, we've been together for this many years, but if we're not going to be able to do this, that, and the third, then I'm okay with it. And I wish you well, but as far as me becoming better as a human being and a better father, better brother, better son, just a better person, and ultimately even a better artist, you know, this is a relationship that we may have to either put on pause or just not have. Right. And once I was so comfortable with doing that, um, I feel like for me to think or for me to be open to confronting people, I actually got what's the word I'm looking for? I got more positive responses from that. Yep. Where it was people opening up to me saying, hey, you know, I, I hear what you said and I actually did have done wrong to you. 
or or people saying, hey, you know, well, I need space too, and I wish you well. But just just the fact that I was able to do it and not feel scared to do it, I feel like that pushed me a lot to doing drugs too, is being afraid to confront people close to me that I didn't think either wished me well or just, just didn't work, weren't on the same accord that I was on. And I'm happy to say that for me doing that and taking time away from them, there's two of my friends that since since we've had that conversation that didn't go to Narcan on, but they haven't drank or smoked weed or done any drugs since then. They're like, hey wow. man, from out, I don't know who this person is. Some of them said it literally and some of them said it kind of subconsciously, like they would be around me drunk or be around me smoking weed and they would see like, yo, this dude isn't even flinching. Right. You know, he's right. not even batting an eye and that's what I want to be on. Right. You know, right. I was able to just be more I was just able to just be present, man. Like I said, the the biggest thing for me at Narcanon, out of everything getting out, to be able to be stable in my life now was being able to do the be there drill, which yep. is where you sit in front of someone with your eyes closed and just not move. Yep. And then the running drill is when you're able to look someone in the eye for a long period of time. And even at times feel like a feeling, I like to call it opia. I looked it up. It's when you look someone in the eye and you just have a feeling of, it's kind of like euphoric, yep. where it's like, I dang you. Um, I'm not taking anything personal. And hence you even fall in love. Like yeah. not not romantically, but spiritually. To yes. where it's like not and not even necessarily with that person, more so with yourself. Like I'm able to overcome anything if I'm able to just confront it and be open to it. That's and right. from that's the biggest that was the biggest trial for me that I still to this day am able to overcome. Where it's not necessarily me having to avoid people or avoid situations. It's I know I'm not supposed to be around this type of thing, so I'm going to leave. Right. Or I know that if I go out to my friend had a premiere, and the premiere was one thing, and then when we were there, there was of course free alcohol, free drinks. I know, hey, these people got about an hour <laughs> amount of time with, with with me before they're not even yeah. with me. Here. So I'm tap in with you guys for this amount of time, then I'm gone. I'm normally yeah. now the first person somewhere, and then the first person to leave. Well, with also it, people notice that the next day, and and being able to wake up and remember everyone who I spoke to, being able to network better, being able to be on top of my finances, it's just it's it's like it's life changing. It's mind blowing and life changing for me. And that's, that's an awesome. Art. And and it's also good to wake up the next morning and not worry about what you did the night before. <laughs> you know. Oh my God. But what did you, I say? But you also said something interesting when you were when you were describing some of the things that you say to these people that you might not have a relationship with anymore, and that is that it can improve you as an artist. And I think so often there's false data out there that, oh, you know, if I do cocaine or if I smoke weed, I'm going to be more creative. And mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's the case. And I think that it's, based on what I, you've told I, me, I can, I pretty much am sure of it. Yeah, I do think that, so drugs do enhance. They do enhance things. And so, but what people need to know is, is it not enhancing talent? Right. It's an perspective of something. And I think that what not doing drugs has done for me now, of course, when it comes to singing from not smoking, uh, I'm able to sing so much better. Yeah. Uh, when through not doing cocaine or drinking, I'm able to focus more. And so with being able to focus more, I know that a lot of musicians know what comes with the studio 
are a lot of suppressive people, whether they know it or not. Right. And so when you're in the studio, you got somebody that can come and they know they can just smoke a ton of weed there. They can just be comfortable and, and kind of it's it's weird. It's kind of like it's like a vampire in a sense, like they're taking energy away from you mm-hmm. and you see it. They may not know it, but it's like to have somebody in a circle of creativity that's not adding to it. It's it could be detrimental to that artist. It could take away from the song. It could take away from your attention on something. So. A lot of the times now when I'm recording, it's mainly just me by myself, just me by myself and the engineer. And I'm able to get so much more work done there. Yeah. And it's nothing against anyone. And and, and, one, and once you are back into the world after recovering, you start to realize how much you attract better people and sometimes how you're the best person for the situation. Yep. And you and people just aren't coming around. And then you start realizing, like, man, when I was, you know, on drugs or drinking a lot, the, I, this studio was filled with people. And now that people n- just know that I'm not doing that anymore, they don't even come. Right. It's just like like a vampire. Like, and when that's they, okay. When, like, when they know that you're shining, when the sun is out, that's they can't right. <laughs> in that area, whether they want to or not. I love that. Well, I can tell you from looking at you, I didn't know you before, but the sun is definitely shining out of your face. I mean, I'm just super happy with with what you've done and and sharing your story with us. And um, keep us informed when you have an album coming out so that we can, you know, tell our listeners, by the way, remember Khalid was on the podcast and now he's got this album coming out because... Um, we definitely like to share the good news. And I know I I only see good news for you from now on. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. I, Did you were you gonna say something? I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say I, I definitely will. I definitely will keep you guys updated. Awesome. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you. <laughs> what a nice young man. And um just the future is wide open for him. And um, I hope that his story resonates with some of you. Um, The one aspect of the Narcanon program that I think is of value to anybody who's in recovery is the New Life Detox. And um, something you might want to check out. You can go to, um, he went to the Narcanon facility in California. So it's Narcanon, O-J-A-I O-J-A-I dot uh, org, Narcanon, O-J-A-I dot org. Have a great week. We'll be back again next week with another interview. We've got some exciting interviews coming up. So please stay with us. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.